Welcome to a very special edition of Crossing Broad FC here on the Crossing Broad Podcast Network. I'm Russell Joy at Joy on Broad, joined as always by my my dear co-host, colleague, and uh, Crossing Broad contributor, Phil Kaidel. And it's a special edition because we are doing this in person. It turns out that we don't live that far apart. So I get to look into Phil's beautiful eyes as he tells me that Liverpool is going to crush my team's dreams of a three-peat in the Champions League final. Phil, how are you doing? Well, welcome, Russ, uh, to my home. I cannot believe you wore a Michael Bradley jersey into my house. And if our listeners think that shtick, I can promise you that it's not. Uh, I can also promise you I'm not going to uh, tell you that Liverpool are crushing anybody's dreams after the way they played this week, but we'll get into it. And I think that's totally fair. Um, I, I do want to point out to the people, I know that we've trashed Michael Bradley and the U.S. men's national team, and right now I, I, did, I did think that, uh, you know, after some of the trolling that you did during the uh, most recent Sixers game, it only felt apropos for me to uh, rock the Michael Bradley jersey into your humble abode, and I didn't catch on fire, so that's good. That's a, certainly not a bad start. Um, you want to talk about bad starts, uh, that would probably sum up the Roma-Liverpool matchup, which we'll get to in a little bit. But first, the matchup that everybody, I think, had been looking forward to seeing, uh, Real Madrid and Bayern Munich, uh, ends 2-2 with Real Madrid going through on aggregate 4-3. A game that Bayern Munich certainly deserved to win, and I honestly, as a Madrid fan, uh, was nervous for the, the vast majority of the game. It felt like Bayern had... Uh, and it turned out that they had a higher possession uh, percentage for the game. It just felt like they were more dangerous, uh, two or three times as dangerous as Real Madrid in this match. And it really did feel like, uh, you know, at some point the uh, the levies were going to break. Uh, I think we could easily have seen Bayern score three, four, even five goals in the first half. And even as things kind of started to uh, to dwindle down at the end of the match, it certainly felt like they were going to be able to get that goal to put them through or if nothing else, um, extended to extra time and, and certainly didn't happen. And it was a little bit of a disappointment. But uh, any any major things that surprised you in this matchup before we really get into the breakdown? I'm surprised that Real Madrid, once again, at home with a lead, played, scared's not the right word, but certainly tentative and certainly not like the defending champions that they are. Uh, there was no need for this match to be as close as it was, uh, or this tie to be as close as it was. And really, you know, it took a, a howler from Sven Ulreich to give Madrid the 4-2 lead in the second half that made the remainder of the second half not quite as sweaty uh, an encounter or nervous a proposition as it might otherwise have been. I just don't know, as we sit here tonight, and we know that Real Madrid are going to another Champions League final, and they're playing Liverpool, who obviously have no recent history in Champions League finals. On paper, you would say, well, that should be Real Madrid just skating through. But I don't think anything you've seen from Real Madrid in the last month, month and a half, makes you think that they're a sure thing against anybody. I agree with you. Bayern Munich had the run of play throughout most of this match when Hamas scored in the second half and put Bayern in a position where one more goal on the road would suffice to put them through. It was nervy, and Kaylor Navas played wonderfully for Real Madrid. But as usual, if your keeper is your either best player on the night or close to it, that's a really bad sign for the other 10 guys. So if I know you're a Real Madrid supporter and a diehard, and they've won plenty, but I would not back them too heavily uh, in this final. Well, I guess, you know, there there were a couple things that uh, I think we were both wrong about, and I think it's always better that we are honest about the fact that, that we're honest here. Bayern gets two goals in the match, and, you know, while you've been kind of touting how old they are and how they needed to start moving on, and even next year how they're going to have to start moving on from guys like Aaron Robin and Frank Ribery, you saw the goals scored by Joshua Kimmich, Joshua, if you, uh, you want to really be proper about it, um, a 23-year-old Wunderkind, and James Rodriguez, who, you know, was a former Real Madrid player who's still only 26, 
they kind of gave you a, a taste of what the future for this club could end up being. Meanwhile, Real Madrid, led by a guy that I said they absolutely need to replace, I'll still stand by that. Kareem Benzema gets the only two goals for Real Madrid in this match. And the second one in the 46th minute really is probably going to go down as what I would assume is one of the all-time biggest blunders in Bayern Munich's history, especially in the Champions League. It could go down as an all-time uh, epic fail moment in the Champions League, and that's uh, Sven Ulreich. Uh, a terrible pass back to the keeper, granted, um, but instead of just pounding it out, pound it out of bounds, get it anywhere, just get it anywhere out of the box, and he he, he just ends up sliding. He kind of loses his footing, ball gets past him, Benzema puts it in, and, and it was it was kind of a, a backbreaker in, in a sense. I mean, it's still early in that game. It's still early in the second half. It's not like Bayern hadn't shown that they were able to, you know, maintain possession and, and get quality shots on goal, but it kind of felt like it sucked the life out of the team, at least for a little bit there, and where they kind of went into, you know, halftime feeling pretty good about themselves. Um, you, you certainly saw the wind kind of come out. Um, now, it was like, what, 17 minutes later is when Hamas went out and uh, you know, scored a nice strike and didn't celebrate in the fa- in the uh, faces of the fans in the um, San Diego Bernabeu. But you know, Ulrich, I think, uh, has done a good job. He had a little bit of a rocky start to the Bundesliga season, but he was a guy that kind of stepped in. And you know, in past years, if Manuel Neuer goes out, you're probably worried about you know what what's going to be behind him and can the guy live up to the hype? Can he, you know, step into those massive boots to fill? This was a game where, you know, Ulrich kind of went back and committed a, a, a fatal flaw, a fatal blunder, and it, it absolutely crushed their chances of, of winning. And it's going to be something that he's going to have to live with. It's something that, you know, as we go back and, and kind of take a look, depending on how the final plays out, you know, this Bayern team is certainly going to be playing the what-if game and the new manager that they're going to have coming in. And as they're looking at player personnel decisions, they're going to have to, you know, kind of look at this and say, you know, man, we're one stupid blunder by a keeper away from, you know, potentially going to extra time. And I think it would have been extra time at that point. Um, and instead, you know, instead of potentially going up against Liverpool, or at that point they still had, didn't know if it would be Liverpool or Roman, you know, instead of going on and, and game planning for a, a Champions League final, you see yourself going home and, you know, you're going to win the Bundesliga again, which really isn't saying a whole lot at this at this point in the state of the, the Bundesliga, but... It just kind of feels like a season that had a lot of promise and a, a, a table that kind of worked its way out and a, uh, a fixture that worked its way out that, you know, could have been advantageous to them. And if, if Sergio Ramos had really been suspended the way that he probably should have been, um, you know, this whole thing could have gone differently. A few things just fall the wrong way and it's the butterfly effect. And, and now instead of being in a final, they find themselves looking in. Two, two quick points for me. Uh, just to add on to what you've said, which I agree with uh, largely and almost wholly. First off, Byron have fallen out of this competition at this stage so many times in recent years that things like the backup goalkeeper giving away the goal that he gave up, and I think it was the 46th minute, and giving Real Madrid a 4-2 lead on aggregate and putting Byron in a position where now they have to score twice to have any hope of going through away from home. Look, that's a real thing. We, I've said this before. These players are human beings, and we love to think that they're automatons and they're professionals, and they don't notice when one of their colleagues screws up and puts them in a bad position. But you have to know that these Bayern players who have experienced so much failure in this competition at this stage in the last five to seven years saw that goal go in and were like, really? Really? This is what it looks like again? We play our hearts out and the keeper makes a mistake that a U14 keeper shouldn't make? And as you pointed out, that is effectively why Bayern are out of this competition again at this stage. And you kind of have been harping on me about how much I bang the drum with how old Bayern are as a side. You know how old Manuel Neuer is? He's 32. 32-year-old goalkeepers get hurt, and they needed Neuer in this match, not just because Ulreich was bad, but because Neuer has been an elite keeper for a long time. Bayern invested a lot in him, and as you pointed out, the fact that Neuer didn't play for them at this stage of the competition is probably a huge reason why they're not going on to the final. 
I do like when athletes take responsibility for their actions. And, and you know, while we've been talking about John Luigi Buffon kind of, you know, blowing up and, and causing international controversy and possibly putting a stain on his legacy, um, Sven Ulreich went on to, uh, to Instagram. And I could read the German here for you if you so choose, but I, I guess I'll translate it. Um, he went on to Instagram and he posted, uh, uh, words cannot describe how disappointed I am about going out of the Champions League. Uh, we are. We were determined to reach the final, and we uh, we put out our best effort um, until. Let me just. Yeah, uh, until this unnecessary mistake happened to me, and he says, uh, "I can't explain it. I'm sorry for my team and for our fans." And uh, he, hashtag Vita Emma Vita like onward, always onward. Um, but Hamas Rodriguez came back. He uh, commented on it. Head up. We're a team. Javi Martinez said, you saved our ass many times. And uh, Jerome Boateng, uh, German says, Kopf hoch. Uh, keep your head high. Wir gewinnen zusammen. Wir verlieren zusammen. We win together. We lose together. So, I don't know. Something nice. Good to see his teammates picking him up in, you know, what is probably going to be the uh, the worst highlight uh, or low light of his career. So, it's... It's a massive upset. It's a massive issue. It's a, a massive thing that's you know going to kind of stain this season. It's going to be something that these fans of Bayern Munich are going to you know kind of carry with them until next season when they're you know once again a prohibitive favorite for, to get deep into the competition. But it certainly is nice to see a guy kind of admit that you know it was his, it was his fault and see his teammates pick him up. That's kind of the human side of this. Uh, you know, kind of to your point, we always think of these guys as robots, and I don't know. Something about that I, I find at least a, a little bit a little bit of a of a soft spot in my I'm, heart. I'm glad to see Byron's field players backing up their keeper in that way for a few reasons. First of which is he's not the starter. You get what you get when your backup keeper is in at the semifinal stage of the Champions League. Uh Ulreich's a professional. He certainly was trying his best. He didn't get the job done, but you know, Manuel Neuer wasn't out there. Ulreich was the guy with the responsibility. He did the best he could. Um, moreover, you know, it's not Ulreich's fault that at the Allianz Arena, Bayern lost 2-1 in the first leg of this tie. And certainly Ulreich's not going to come out after the tie is over and say, well, if we played a little better at home, we wouldn't have been in this situation on the road. But that's a fact. Like, if I'm Ulreich and I get too much abuse from the Bayern supporters, I'll be like, hey, wait a minute. This was a two-leg tie. We had 180-plus minutes to score more goals. And with all of this accumulated talent, and I'm looking at you, Lewandowski, we didn't get it done. So as much as we want to say it comes down to one goal, it almost never does. And actually, that's going to be a theme of the Rumber-Liverpool tie that we're going to Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to kind of belabor this point, but I'm still a believer in Robert Lewandowski. I still will stand by the fact that losing Arjen Robin really changes the entire dynamic of of how they get into the offensive third and really how they get as many dangerous chances as they they do. But he missed a few sitters in the game, which were inexcusable. There was, you know, I think what many would have claimed was a penalty uh, denied against him in the second half. Um, but I, uh, Lewandowski is still an elite striker in this in this game internationally. He, he's a guy that practically any team would run to the docket to try to sign and I wouldn't be surprised to see other clubs trying to inquire about him uh, in this summer transfer window uh, you know setting up for next season um, I don't know I don't think we really need to get back into uh, how old Bayern is um, but as I look forward for this Real Madrid team it's going to be it's going to be ch- it's going to be tough there's no doubt about it. Um, I was really, and I guess this is where we'll get into Roma-Liverpool, there was a, a big part of me that was hoping that Roma was going to come back and win for a couple of reasons. One, I just don't think they're nearly as good of a side as Liverpool. I think they're an easier matchup. But also because, as I've been saying for a few weeks now, I was looking forward to really seeing if, if this Serie A team could change the entire narrative around Serie A versus La Liga. And if you go into this uh, this semifinal matchup, and you're able to knock out the team that knocked out uh, the the English Premier League champions, and then go and knock off a team that's you know a two-time defending Champions League champion. Uh, you know, two rounds after you've knocked out the kings of Spain, 
I mean, that's a heck of a of an accomplishment. I mean, it's murderer's row, really, as you you know try to get yourself to the final. And now it, it turns out that in some way it's it's Liverpool. First, you knock out City, who who not a lot of people give you a a chance of beating over two legs, maybe stealing one at home, but certainly not advancing. And this Liverpool side really didn't deserve to go through again. Like if if we're playing the who deserved it on on this day. Uh, you know, things could have easily gone the other way, and you could have been seeing a Roma-Bayern Munich final. And instead, this this Roma side, it it took them a while to to get it going. Um, I, I thought at at plenty of points in this this matchup, uh, we saw a Roma side that felt confident that that had done a good job of controlling possession throughout the game. We saw Edin Dzeko step up yet again, but this Liverpool side just doesn't quit, and Mane. You know, Mane did what Mane does. Uh, there was one interesting thing that I want to get to in a little bit about how uh, I think Roma did a good job of kind of uh, cutting Mohamed Salah out of this game, and it's going to be an interesting matchup that I want to get to uh, as we discuss the final. But um, as you're sitting back as a fan of the EPL and a guy who, you know, believes that Liverpool is destined to uh, to hoist the cup at the end, how did you feel as uh, I thought as I just heard out? you say that on a different day, Roma should have gone through and deserved to go through. And I have to be brutally honest with you. I don't see that at all. First off, this was not a one-match situation. Uh, Roma went to Anfield, lost 5-2, and it should have been 9 or 10-2. Roma were absolutely helpless for an hour at Anfield. And the fact that it was only 5-2, as we discussed in our last show, was mainly down to your man, Jurgen Klopp who, with 65 minutes left, took Salah off, took the foot off the accelerator, and didn't, uh, as some of our colleagues at Crossing Broad like to say, package Roma into a capsule and shoot them into the sun. That's what should have happened at Anfield. It didn't. But they still, Liverpool, took a three-goal lead uh, to Roma. And Sadio Mane scored in the ninth minute. So now it's 6-2 on aggregate, and Roma has to score at least four goals have any chance to get out of this now did they score four goals eventually sure they did because two of those goals happened in the last six or seven minutes when the officials were trying to make up for some of the iffy calls that they had uh, failed to make or made incorrectly earlier in the match but again over 180 plus minutes who were the better side Liverpool was the better side by a lot not by a little and the fact that they took Mo Salah out of the second match is all well and good but they needed to take him out of the first match, and they needed to do something about Mane as well. I mean, keep in mind, one of Roma's goals in this match uh, rifled in off James Milner's face. That was the best finish of his career. That was the best finish of his career, wasn't it? It sure was. Career, wasn't it? I mean, that was a beautiful, beautiful head of there. But to say Milner. that this Roma side was somehow uh, done unjustly, either by the officials or by the gods of football, over 180 minutes... You'll never get me to admit that. And again, that's, while I'm an EPL guy, I'm not a Liverpool guy. Like, if this were City in this situation, I'd really be riled up. As an EPL fan who wants to see Liverpool in the final, I'm just trying to give Liverpool their due. They were better, and I think they were conclusively better. Yeah, that's not what I mean. I, I'm not trying to make it sound like they were robbed over 180 minutes. I mean, in this game, it felt like they should have been able to kind of push through and, and get the remaining goal or goals they needed to advance. I mean, if you look at at this match alone, they outshot Liverpool twenty four to eleven. Uh, they had sixty one percent possession. It just kind of felt like you know they they doubled up Liverpool on corners. It felt like at least in the early going of this match, it felt like Roma was going to be able to to snag an early goal and really kind of apply the pressure and and kind of to your point, you know, Mane goes out in the ninth minute and scores, and then thankfully. James Milner's beautiful noggin. I don't. I don't know why I called it beautiful. It's really not. But uh, ball pounds off off of his noggin, goes in in the fifteenth minute, and then it kind of feels like the team has life. And it felt like Roma had kind of, uh, you know, taken over in terms of possession. They, I thought they dictated play for the vast majority of the first half. But Wijnaldum, uh goes in the twenty fifth minute, puts Liverpool back ahead, and at that point. Yeah, you're starting to look at, at the aggregate score and realizing that there's not much of a chance for Roma to come back, but yet they come out in the second half. And like I was saying before, Ed and Dzeko comes out. He scores in another big moment. Um, and you pick up two goals. Now, one of them was obviously in the 90th 
the 90th minute plus four were in like what the 95th minute the final minute of stoppage time there was a question about whether or not there would be another minute added on um, and they they didn't end up getting themselves in position to uh, to warrant one last you know uh, last ditch effort but I thought it it spoke a lot about this Roma team I mean we said throughout the earlier stages that Juventus and Real Madrid are the kind of teams that the way that they had been setting up, at least in this tournament, and it feels like recently, there are teams that like to snag victory from the jaws of defeat in the last moment. And this Roma side is is similar in, in that way, and they, they have been over the last couple of uh, of legs here, where, you know, against Barcelona, they, they looked essentially dead, and they, they pulled the whole thing back. They defied all logic, they defied all odds, and they were able to complete the comeback and then some. And it really did feel like, you know, to me, that they were going to be able to do it in this matchup. And the fact that Salah did not make the score sheet was, I don't know, I would consider that even more shocking than Ronaldo not making the score sheet in the uh, the Real Madrid and Bayern matchup. So, you know, as we kind of look forward now, Liverpool is a team that can obviously be dangerous when they don't control possession in a match. We know that they're going to try to play a lot of counter. Um, and I, I would assume that Real Madrid is going to end up winning the possession battle uh, as we look forward to that final. It's going to be a very interesting matchup, but I think if nothing else, Roma kind of laid out a blueprint for how to how to really apply pressure onto Liverpool, and I think that as we kind of look forward, Marcelo is going to be the guy that's going to be of the utmost importance. Now, whether that's him trying to change up his style a little bit to really stay back defensively and negate anything that Salah can bring, I don't know if that's going to be the goal here, but I do worry about Marcelo's um, tendency to get up in the offensive third, uh, making things happen, that he's going to get caught out, and then that Liverpool counterattack is just going to burn them down his left flank, their offensive right flank, and really apply a lot of pressure to Kaylor Navas. Uh, is there anything else that you really wanted to get to from, uh, from Roma-Liverpool? Well, every coin has two sides, as you know, and while you want to rightly give Roma credit for keeping the battle up to the very end, they got it back to 7-6 on aggregate, which is no disgrace. Uh, but it's the as highest, much as... Highest-scoring high semifinal, I think, right, in uh, Champions League history? Yeah, it was a joy to watch unless you were somebody who is used to 2-1, 2-0, 3-1. Um, it was bonkers at times. And th- there were a lot of... Calls that were made and, and not made, which we can talk about or not, it really doesn't much matter to me over the course of the 180-plus minutes. I always feel like the better team comes out ahead. I mean, you want to give Roma credit for taking the battle to Liverpool to the end, and that's great. For me, the takeaway is here comes Liverpool again. They're up 7-4 on aggregate with like five regulation minutes to go and whatever they're going to add on in added time. And all they have to do is see the match out to go through and they give up two goals in about eight and a half nine minutes uh the thought i had and and something i talked about before we went on the air was great teams kill games off liverpool didn't kill this game off they just watched it bleed out slowly and frankly but for the fact that more at a time wasn't given and that they'd gotten a couple of uh, lucky whistles through the course of the match they sneaked through it shouldn't have looked like this for Liverpool based on the way they bossed Roma around at Anfield and the way that they did the job for 85 minutes in this second match. But it's not an 85-minute match, obviously. And as a Liverpool supporter, if you are one, which I am not, but as a Liverpool supporter, if you are preparing yourself to watch a Champions League final, what lead against Real Madrid would you feel safe with? Like three goals with 10 minutes left? Maybe. Uh, two goals with five minutes left, doubtful. One goal in extra time, definitely not. These are the same frailties. And Virgil van Dijk has made a huge difference in what Liverpool does defensively, but he hasn't fixed all the problems because there's no reason for them to have let it get this close this late. I'm just kind of wondering at this point, if you're a Roma fan, how much are you going to blame your team for the first leg and, and the deficit that they had obviously given themselves that they dug such a a gaping hole or are you going to uh you know go after the officials like Buffon about Trent Alexander-Arnold's handball uh that obviously saved a goal in that matchup should have resulted in a in a direct red a straight red card and did not which again could have 
you know, absolutely changed the tide of that game and and really put Liverpool's backs against the wall even more so than they already were. Were you surprised that, that there was no red card issued? Well, the problem I have with Roma's complaints after this match was not so much that they complained about Alexander-Arnold's, frankly, excellent save with his right hand. It would have been a fantastic save for a keeper. Unfortunately, he's a defender, and so he can't use his hands. Um, I don't mind them complaining about that non-call because that's a call that should have been made, and it definitely would have changed the, changed the complexion of this match, and it didn't happen. The problem is Roma went on and on about other things that happened in the match. Uh, you mentioned the one Wijnaldum goal earlier. That goal happened after there was a ball in the air, and Virgil van Dijk and Edin Dzeko are in the Roma box competing for the ball, and van Dijk either gets there first if you're a Liverpool, Liverpool supporter or undercuts Dzeko if you're a Roma supporter, but the ball happens to find Wijnaldum who scores, the Roma personnel, the president, the sporting director after the match were complaining about that play. Well, I have news for you. That's a play I see in youth soccer matches, in MLS matches, in uh, leagues all over the world. Two big men going after a ball in the air. And whoever wants it a little more usually gets it. And if we're going to call a foul every time professional players go up in the air after the ball with their heads and use a shoulder or possibly a bicep to get advantage, we're never going to see the ends of these matches. They're going to go for three and four hours. So for me, I don't want to see that play blown down. Is it a bad bounce for Roma that it falls away out of many scores? Yes, but I don't want to see that play die. Later on, Dzeko gets hauled down in the box in the 49th minute. He'd been wrongly flagged for offside, so instead of there being a penalty given for the foul on Dzeko, it just ends up being Liverpool ball and no play, really. Look, it's horrible if you're a Roma fan. And again, if I were a City fan and, and Dzeko was still wearing the sky blue, I'd be very upset by that. But how many times a week do we see offside blown by these officials running the sideline? Every week. It's nonstop because it's a really hard job to do. It's only because it's a Champions League match is it so uh, intensified, the scrutiny, on the failure to make that call correctly. But for... Roma's president, a guy named Jim Pelota, to say, quote, if they don't get VAR in the Champions League, it is an absolute joke. Man up. It is not the fact that they didn't have VAR in this second leg of this tie that put Roma out. It's the fact that Roma went to Anfield and shipped five goals. I don't know too many teams that make Champions League finals that give up five goals in the road leg of the semifinal tie. I mean, in fairness, that's what Liverpool almost did, so... Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I do think that, you know, VAR continues to be a hot-button issue in, in world football, and it's something that it doesn't make any sense to me why it's not part of the Champions League. I don't understand it. It's had rousing success for the most part uh, in the leagues that it's been adopted. We even saw today in the uh, Manchester United-Brighton match, you know, they don't use VAR, but they have their uh, their goal confirmation program that they use that ended up, uh, you know, counting the one goal, the only goal in that matchup, where Brighton ends up, you know, avoiding relegation by beating Manchester United at home. You know, another great matchup there for uh, Jose Mourinho, something to be really proud of. Um, I don't know. If if it's me, if this is a uh, the Champions League final, and there's a handball like that that absolutely would change the momentum of a game, you know, with that much time left, it's, it's only in the 63rd minute. You mean to tell me that a team is supposed to sit back with 27 minutes left in the match. Uh, you know, they go on to lose, and, and they shouldn't be outraged that their sporting director and that their president shouldn't be outraged that that call was missed and that it could have just as easily been overturned by having one person looking at a video monitor uh, in wherever, you know, reverse that call. Like, that's something to me. Like, hello, it's 2018. These leagues, like Serie A, have had this adopted. The Bundesliga has it, like, review the freaking call, you know? And I don't know if this is because, you know, the Champions League uh concept here is that, you know, we're going to we're going to keep it traditional. We think that these are the best officials in the world and we should defer to them and keep the human element in, but I'm sorry, I don't care about the human element. I want these matches to be called the best way and, you know, if if that leads to 
whatever team I support, you know, in, in that matchup going down a man, then I have to deal with it. But there, there's no denying that that was a red card. It's not like it was an iffy call. It's a call that was missed by the men who were wearing yellow in that matchup who, uh, you know, need to make the appropriate call. And it's kind of an indictment, I would say, on UEFA for not not implementing the technology that's worked out, uh, you know, in other leagues at this point. It's it's inexcusable to me, and I, you know, I don't want to say that anybody who's against it has an old man take, but, you know, I, I it's not like interrupting the sanctity of, of world football. Well, this isn't an old man take. Uh, the best high road response I can give to your eloquent monologue there is to say that as a Manchester City supporter, if we're getting right down to it, City were really hard done by over two legs by the officials against Liverpool. Uh, Zane had a goal uh, waved off for offside, which was clearly not offside, and we discussed that at length in a prior episode. And Mo Salah scored a goal where he was offside. And you know, Liverpool took a 3-0 lead into the second leg of that tie at the Etihad. If it's 2-0, oh, and oh, by the way, Sterling was denied a penalty in that same two-leg tie. So every club that falls out of every elimination competition can point to not one, not two, but probably six, eight, or ten decisions in a given match that went against them that, had they gone the other way, might have swung the outcome. I don't want to live in a world where every time officials make mistakes, the fallback is salty tears. Juventus and Roma did Italian football and world football no favors while they're crying about their exits from this tournament. No no offense, play better. That would be my response. I can't help feel that you're uh, anti-Serie and you're anti-Italian, but I'm going to move on from there. It feels like the only teams that you really are are super critical of for having feelings are uh, are Serie A teams. You know, you hate Buffon, you hate Juventus, and now you hate Roma. Just, I think it was Don Corleone who said it best: "You can act like a man." That's beautiful. Can I be a man? I'm not forty though. What was that the OSU coach a few years ago? Right? I'm a man. I'm forty. Let's move on to the um, the NIT as it were, the Europa League. Atletico Madrid and Arsenal. Um, a <laughs> I'm going to try not to laugh at Arsene Wenger, but it's it, it becomes increasingly difficult every every time he comes So wait out. a minute, wait a minute. Let's, but, let's stop for a second. So you can criticize me for finding fault with an over-emotive set of Serie A clubs who complain about official decisions as the reasons why they are out of the Champions League rather than their own shortcomings. But then when we talk about Arsenal and the Europa League and Arsene Wenger and his uh, setting son, if it will, you have no problem laughing at him. Do I have that right? Yeah, it's perfectly reasonable. Oh, fair enough. Arsene, okay, then continue. It's, it's it's my typical double standard. Arsene Wenger, look, Arsene Wenger had the opportunity to walk out as Arsenal manager in a classy way, to move on, to make it about the club, and to thank them for all the support, to thank them for giving him multiple extensions well past when he had been a successful manager. He has not adapted to the times. I don't think he relates to his players. I think there are plenty of issues that we've seen with Wenger where he has been at Arsenal for probably four or five years too long. All of that said, he chose to you know, put it out there to the people that, no, I'm not retiring. They're pushing me out. He complained about it. We, we talked about this last week. And I don't care where he goes. He just needs to go. And he was looking for this elusive Europa League title, and they crapped the bed. I mean, Atletico wins this match 1-0. Uh, they, they go through on aggregate 2-1. And Arsenal, with all of the attacking talent they have, they added a Boomy Young. They've got Lacazette. They've got guys that can score. They have players. They have... they. They have a team that there's no excuse to go into Atletico Stadium and not walk out with at least a goal. And they didn't do it. They they really look like they didn't show up for the matchup. And I think it, it just kind of continued to cap what had been a pretty awful recent run for Arsene Wenger's club. As we said last week, really the crime was that Arsenal played the first leg of this tie at the Emirates and were up a man for like 75 or 80 minutes and finished that 
match 1-1. That was really where this tie was lost. I can't imagine anybody being a little bit surprised that Atletico Madrid, with 1-1 as the score of the first leg of this tie and going back home, that Atletico Madrid won, Arsenal nil, would be the outcome. That would be the most likely outcome. That would be odds on, wouldn't it? They're going to scratch out one goal, and they're going to force Arsenal to chase the game and chase the ball, and they're going to pack it in tight. And despite all of Arsenal's vaunted attacking skill, Lagazette, Aubameyang, Ozil, whatever, we've got the goal, we've got the lead, come get us, and they never got it. I love the fact, by the way, that it was Diego Costa who reemerged to put the final knife in Wenger in this match and in this tie. The other point I'll make to you is Wenger is in the same trap or was in the same trap in this match that Mourinho is in in every Manchester United match for the rest of this season. The results for Arsenal and the results for United matter way more for the managers than they do for any of the players. Because when you look at Arsenal's roster, again, a lot of these guys are looking around the locker room like, who's going to be here next year? We don't know who our manager is going to be. We don't know who the new manager will like or not like. We don't know who the board is looking to offload. We don't know how much money they're going to spend. It's rats and sinking ship time for Wenger. And that is not a time to try to take a club in frank disarray to go to Atletico Madrid and squeeze out a result and have to score? Oh, no. That was almost never going to happen. So let's take a look at a matchup that we were definitely looking forward to, uh, two matchups. We were looking forward to seeing what could have been, probably should have been, a much tighter contested uh, top of the table in Serie A, a one-point difference between Juventus at the top and Napoli in second place. We went into this past weekend expecting uh, a Juventus, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe a draw at Inter, certainly not a victory. And we expected Napoli to beat up on Fiorentina. And what we ended up seeing in these matchups was something that I, I don't think either of us were really prepared for. Uh, Napoli loses a man in the sixth minute uh, of their matchup. Now, that, that game was on a Sunday. That was already after they had watched Juventus go out and claim a 3-2 victory over Inter Milan after uh, Matias Vecino was uh, given a red card at the 18th minute mark in that matchup. So Juventus goes out, part of a champion. They knock off Inter uh, at Inter, and they kind of set the stage. They put all the pressure on Napoli, and where we had said, I think you had specifically said last week that you know, if, if you're Juve, you need to apply pressure to Napoli. But, man, if you screw this thing up, then Napoli gets to go out on Sunday against a, a much weaker Fiorentina team with the uh, the possibility of a victory putting them in uh, in the lead for Serie A. If nothing else, uh, a loss for Juve and a, and a draw for Napoli would have put them in a position where they would have been tied at the top of the table. And here we are, and everything kind of everything kind of falls into place for Juve to... Uh, you know, claim what is it? Their sixth? No, their seventh straight Scudetto, and it's it's certainly going to you know shift all of the pressure that had been on Juve to to go out and and get two very difficult road victories uh, to try to you know hold off Napoli. Now it it looks like Napoli has all the pressure on them, and and really, I couldn't put money against Juventus at this point to uh, to go on and, and claim the title. Well, all you said is straight and right. I would only add the details that. Even though Juve were playing up a man for 70-odd minutes in this match against Inter Milan on the road, it still took an 87th-minute own goal from Inter Milan and then an Igayin strike in the 89th minute to get Juve through. But I pointed out last week on the show that the timing of these matches day on day was going to be a major issue in how these things fell out. And sure enough, if you're Napoli and you're watching this match and Milan goes down a man early and yet is leading almost the entire match. As a Napoli player, certainly, and, and as a supporter as well, you're saying, look at this. Juventus is going to kick away another guilt-edged chance to kill us, and they're not going to get the three points, and we are going to have destiny in our own hands in our next match, uh, in a match that we should definitely win. And no, that's not what happens. Juve, in the last three minutes of regulation time, scores twice, gets the three points, and you can almost feel the deflation for Napoli going into this match at Fiorentina. And it only gets worse when 
Kulibali goes off in the sixth minute and opens the door for Giovanni Simeone to score his hat trick. Fiorentina 3, Napoli 0 could well be an epitaph for Napoli's title run. Even if they win out, it may not be enough. If nothing else, you know, it's it's something where I'm just disappointed. I think overall, I think a lot of these leagues this year have just been runaways. Like we've known all season that City was going to wrap up the EPL. We knew that that PSG was going to take Liga, and we knew that Bayern was going to win the Bundesliga. And and the Serie A, you know, showdown, the way that Napoli was able to go out and beat Juventus a week before was it was incredible. Like it it put all the pressure. And again, you were in the driver's seat. You controlled your own destiny, and you had an exponentially easier schedule looking you in the face and you go out and crap the bed I mean there there's no other way to put it It, Napoli blew it and you know even if they win out you now need to hope that Juve falters and falters multiple times and is it possible yeah like Juventus we said last week still has a pretty difficult schedule ahead of them Uh, I would say that their strength of schedule is is still higher but will they be able to uh, to to knock off Juve? I mean, they no longer control that directly. Now they need to hope hope that the rest of Serie A helps them out. And yeah, I mean, like it'll it'll be nice for a lot of these other teams, you know, in in terms of positioning in the table to beat Juventus. Of course, there are, are going to be teams that are going to you know it's the all for one, one for all mentality. I mean, nobody in the league wants to see Juve win yet another title, a sixth or seventh consecutive Scudetto at this point. So I would I would expect that the teams going out against Juve are going to give it their best shot now whether or not they're going to be able to be successful in beating them is is an entirely different thing but you know at the end of this when Napoli finishes second in Serie A they're going to only have themselves to blame you're just hurtful that man has given his heart his life his soul to this beautiful game and you are going to besmirch his name because he happened to make a, a few comments about a ref making the appropriate call and then kind of sending the Twitter trolls, you know, after him and his wife. How dare you, Phil? How dare I just you? said I was happy to see him win. I, I don't know what you're talking about. So uh, as we move on here, the Premier League this week, um, Mo Salah, you want to tell people about uh, about what he did? It was uh, I, I love reading your editorial notes as we go through the uh, the show here. It's beyond hilarious because last week you and I spent a good 90 seconds to two minutes talking about what a gentleman and what a credit to world football Mo Salah is and how I think you said you wanted to move in with your family. I think I said I wanted to adopt him. There was a lot of conjecture and plaudits uh, laid at Salah's feet. And then this week in the Premier League, he tries to punch a guy. It was a terrible left-hand jab, whatever, like a half across that he threw, and it missed and fortunately for him, it missed because it left enough wiggle room for him, first of all, not to get sent off straight away. And secondly, for the powers of be not to go back and give him uh, punishment after the fact and look back on it. Uh, if he wasn't a key player on a club headed for the Champions League final, I think there might have been a retrospective ban or at the very least serious consideration of same. But nobody's doing anything about this because it's most lies. Cuddly, sweet. Everybody loves him. He smiles. He scores a lot of goals. Um, <laughs> good for him. Uh, but that sort of petulance we usually ascribe to other players of lesser character. And I think it's just hilarious that last week we gushed about this guy and then he almost got himself in a world of trouble in a match where he had no reason to get himself in trouble. Liverpool are relatively safe in their position in the league table. And the Champions League is all that matters. For, so for Salah to even think about doing something to get himself sent off and or punished in any meaningful way is beyond stupid. There was uh, one positive that I saw with Liverpool this week. I, I, I listened to this. I don't, I don't know if you got to it, but it's, it's something that people should listen to if they haven't already. Uh, Salah's manager, Jurgen Klopp, was uh, interviewed by uh, Roger Bennett of Men and Blazers. They put out part of the, uh, I think they're going to do a two-part sit down uh, with Jurgen Klopp on NBC Sports. Um, but they released, I think it was the first third of it on their podcast channel. And just kind of listening to the way that Klopp has managed to, you know, get this Liverpool side uh, straightened out throughout the season and, and overcome the loss of Philip Coutinho to Barcelona. There there was just a lot that I, I think uh, it was nice. It pulled back the curtain on this team, and I've never been a big Liverpool supporter, and I certainly would not claim to be one now, but 
Uh, Klopp is a guy that I've liked for a long time, and and he's a guy that you know if, if I'm any kind of a of a uh, an owner of of a you know major marquee team, he's a guy that I certainly would have thrown copious amounts of cash at to to uh, you know take my team over. So Liverpool, I think, continue to look brilliant in that hire. Meanwhile, uh, back to Arsene Wenger and his uh, fantastic tour, his farewell tour. Uh, until he goes off and manages in what China probably. Um, you said he was going to be a union manager. No, I I was just putting that out there to him because you know what what could possibly make the union more relevant than having the beautiful, fantastic, what is he like six foot seven? He's a he's a very tall, lanky man. He looks like a man who's never eaten a cheeseburger before, which is fine because he's French. But like, I don't know. Are they rationing the snails in France? I don't. He would get know. blown into and then over the river end at Talon. Yeah, it's probably probably accurate. He looks like a lawn dart. He's a French lawn dart. Anyway, he uh, has a he had a very very awkward uh, pre match ceremony uh, with uh, Sir Alex Ferguson and Jose Mourinho. Even in the aftermath of the match, he kind of stormed off the field. the The handshake was terse. It was it was short. It looked almost as if Mourinho had a heart, like he was gonna ch- was gonna try to I don't know say something to him in a in a somewhat uh, reflective manner but no Wenger wanted nothing to do with it and his last manager his last match as Arsenal manager um, against United did not go well here's how I would describe this pre-match ceremony that Sir Alex Ferguson led for Arsene Wenger before this match at Old Trafford this past weekend if you could imagine a family-owned business and the patriarch of the business in this case in this analogy it's Ferguson was a notorious hard-ass and a miserable, stinting bastard for the entire time he ran the business, right? And then he retires, and he's sitting on all his money and all his achievement and all his success. And at this point, he can afford to have largesse, and he can afford to be gracious because he did all his misery while he ran the show, right? And now there's some other guy running his business who he is lording over to an extent, but again, the old man doesn't run the show anymore. It's now on to the next generation, which in this, again, in this analogy is Mourinho. And again, to feather his nest and make himself look better, the old man decides to bury the hatchet with an old rival, uh, a, a business contemporary that he had significantly nasty dealings with through the course of his success. But now, of course, he's retired, so now's the time to bury the hatchet. So Ferguson takes over the pitch side before this match, a match that really doesn't matter that much in the grand scheme of things. And Ferguson comes down with this case, uh, this lacquered wooden case. It's gorgeous. Uh, you know, someone on Twitter, I think, made the mention, the, the question was, was someone's soul captured in that thing, like in Pulp Fiction? But in any event, it's a trophy, which, by the way, is great irony. The fact that Ferguson would be handing Wenger a trophy in this ceremony is hilarious insofar as Ferguson took so many away from Wenger in the time that they both managed. But again, the new guy, Mourinho, the younger generation, is watching all of this and has got to be like, really? This is what we're doing? We're going to be nice to this guy now? I thought we agreed this guy was a pain in the ass. I thought we agreed we had no respect for this guy. And Mourinho tried to be gracious for about four and a half seconds and stand with Ferguson and Wenger for the pictures as Wenger opened the box and saw a trophy and tried to smile. But, you know, at some point, I really wish Arsene Wenger had looked at Sir Alice Ferguson and said, you know what, man, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, I'm going with my team. Uh, You can send that home to London uh, with our people, or you can stuff up your eye. I don't really care. Uh, but instead, Wenger in the moment decides he's not going to make a scene. And yeah, it was as bad as I've described it. It was hard to watch. And probably all anyone deserved was for not that not to happen in the first place. It was a beautiful case of schadenfreude for anybody who is watching who does not like Arsene Wenger. It was, it was a beautiful moment, and it's something that uh, I think will go down in in the historical archives of the EPL is, uh, you know, one of the, the most enjoyable moments to watch uh, a guy like Arsene Wenger just kind of squirm in his seat, as it were. 
Um, in the wake of the new Cobra Kai series, I think Wenger should have swept Mourinho's leg. Take the leg. Sweep the leg. My apologies. Um, um, you were not old enough to watch that movie. Yeah, Ralph Maggiano, right? <laughs> or Raggi- was it Maggio? Maggio. Ralph Maggio. <laughs> Maggio. Ralph Maggiano. Place, Ralph Maggiano place. has a fifteen ninety nine chicken parm special on Tuesday nights. <laughs> Is Machiano the one where you uh, you order an entree and they give you a second one for free to take home or whatever? Yeah, Machiano's is the place where they keep bringing so food until you fall off your chair and they have to call an Uber to slop you home. Yes, that's Machiano's. That's something, that's something that we, that we should, should do. do. Ralph Machio is the karate kid. Uh, and he moves pretty good for, I guess he's probably 55 at this point uh, in that Cobra Kai series. Poor Mr. Miyagi. He's dead, isn't he? Yeah. It's very sad. Love Mr. Miyagi. Wax on, wax off. Um as we look forward in the in the EPL, Chelsea's sitting on 66 points with three to play. Um, in, in theory, they could be a threat to Liverpool, who's got 72 points but uh, has played one extra game. So they've only got two games left. Chelsea only six points behind with, an, with a game in hand. Uh, Tottenham has 71 points with three to play. So there, there are top four spots. Uh, there's some jockeying that's going on. And like I said before, you know, United kind of re- – <laughs> Not kind of. They definitely faltered today against Brighton. Uh, certainly a very poor result for for them. It was nice, I guess, in some way to see that, you know, Brighton was able to go out and in a match they really didn't, I, I don't know, I guess they didn't really figure to uh, to earn a point. They go out and they, you know, clinched not being relegated for, for a year. So that's kind of nice. I mean, it's something that we don't really get to experience all that much especially in MLS there is no relegation because if there were the Philadelphia Union would be you know like a rec league team at this point um but to see the joy on the faces of the Brighton players today to to watch grown men fall to the ground and cry uh you know tears of of joy huh see that um to see that happen and and know that it's not because they won a title it's not because they finished top 4 but just so they didn't get sent down to the next league uh, I don't know. There was something kind of nice about it for them to be able to do it in front of their home fans. And again, like to be able to take down a legendary club like United, I think it was the first time since 1987 they had beaten United. It's only the second time in their club's history that they had beaten United. So uh, that was a heck of a moment in the EPL. Anything else that uh, I, I guess do you want to do you want to talk about the uh, the relegation zone right now? I will. And, and it's a good segue. I've long been on record uh, that I hate math. Uh, I went to law school and became a lawyer because I don't like mathematics. You don't like math or meth or both? (laughs) I've never tried meth. I never will try meth. I hate math, M-A-T-H. I hate mathematics. Uh, I believe in it, but I don't like it. Uh, Brighton, by winning today, uh, got themselves to 40 points. Now, 40 points used to be this unspoken, unwritten, but widely believed uh, figure that if you earned 40 points in the Premier League, you would stay up. That was safety incarnate. Brighton got to 40 points in their 36th match today, and they're not near the bottom of the table. They're freaking 11th. They're one point behind Newcastle, having played one more match. They are two points ahead of Crystal Palace, who's in 12th place, and Bournemouth, uh, and Watford, all of whom have 38 points and have played 36 matches. So Brighton are not only through, they're comfortably through. That's not even a question. They could have lost today and probably got themselves to safety. Uh, The challenge is going to be for all these clubs below these teams who were bunched in 38 points. You know, West Ham have 35 points uh, through 35 matches, but they got obliterated by Man City the last uh, one of their last matches, and they look to be in deep trouble. Huddersfield have 35 points with three matches to play, but they're all against teams they're probably going to lose to. And then you have four clubs below that, Swansea, Southampton, Stoke, West Brom. Very low point totals, and three of them have to go down. But if, for example, if Southampton can peel off uh, six or seven points out of the last three matches, they'll probably escape. So, unfortunately, because Man City ran away with his title the way they did, and because nobody really cares at the end of the day whether Chelsea overtakes Tottenham for fourth place, the real intrigue in the league is at the bottom of the table. Now, it takes a masochist to get into that sort of thing, but every once in a while, it's good for a change of pace. Um, speaking of changes of pace, uh, let's let's get to a uh, a league that has not been competitive at all this year, 
and one that I think is going to make all headlines for all the wrong reasons. Of course, that's League N, and uh, a very strange thing happened. Uh, a referee who had been suspended earlier this this season, uh, in January 14th, for attempting to kick Nance Diego Carlos during a 1-0 league defeat to PSG, is going to be honored uh, at the end of the season. He's retiring, uh, so the uh, the decision was made to honor him as, uh, what is it, the referee of the year in, in League N. He's going to receive the award at the UNFP trophy ceremony, uh, where League N's player of the year will also be honored. What a strange turn of events. It's not only that he was found guilty of attempting to kick this player, but he was given a three-month ban this season, like three and a half months ago, and now he's going to be honored at at the same awards ceremony as the League Gun Player of the Year. It gets even better than that. First of all, the man has a name. He's Tony Chapron. I think I have that right uh, in terms of the pronunciation. Um, yeah, Tony yeah, Soprano, Soprano uh, he relocated <laughs> right. and the, the, you know, the, became the a rapper. The French equivalent of same. It's a glorious piece of video if you have time to go to YouTube and look up Tony Chapron and Nantes and PSG on January 14th because what Chapron did would have been a six-match ban had he been a player. Uh, but because he was an official, they gave him three months, and then it ended up being six months. And the vast majority of pundits who have considered Tony Chapron as an official going forward have reached the same conclusion. His career is over as an official at the highest level. Uh, he might be able to find some uh, matches at lower levels to work, but he's not going to be even be, even be entrusted at Ligue 1 at this point because you just can't be kicking the players. The players are what make the league go. But yes, the fact that... I, I can't even imagine, but you know, it's such a French thing, right? That this guy probably will show up to the ceremony on May 13th to accept the award for uh, official of the season. Voted by his peers, by the way. Now, of course, the organization tried to annul the vote because they're embarrassed by it. Um, all I can say is France, Ligue 1, we love you. Never change. Not only... I, I don't know if you mentioned this because I, I got lost in the highlight, but uh, not only did Tony Soprano, as I'm going to call him now, uh, not only did he um, try to kick this player, but he also then followed it up by giving him a red card. So I don't, Oh, that's right. So I, I don't know. I don't know what the grounds for giving the guy a red card are. I mean, like, he he literally was running down the field. Chapron, like, speaking of sweeping the leg, legitimately tries to sweep the leg, then gets mad because he doesn't make contact, stands up, and then gives the player a second yellow, resulting in a red card and ejection from the match. My God. I'm pretty sure it was explained away as dissent is why uh, the player was sent off. I mean, imagine that, Phil. You know, you're running down the field in the middle of a match against PSG. The ref tumbles to the ground, tries to sweep your leg. You probably said, like, what the F is going on, and the guy's going to throw you out of the match. I mean, like, this is bad. I mean, like, anybody who's ever played in Youth League, have you had somebody try to sweep your leg? Yeah, of course. Has it ever been the ref? No, probably not. Not something that you're used to seeing or feeling or experiencing in any kind of a in any kind of a match. And for it to happen at the top flight of French football is is also... I don't know, one of the more ridiculous things, but to your point, yeah. Thank you, Lee Gunn. Uh, if nothing else, you gave us what I think we would have expected from Serie A, but you did it you did it yourself. Here's a real question, Phil. Do they do VAR in uh in Lee Gunn? Because if if not, I wonder if we could have gone back and, and had a review of uh contact being made by the official or not. I think we need VAR for officials now. Uh well, I'm trying to think what are some things that could be reviewable for refs? Uh whether or not they make contact on a kick. Uh, if they raise the card with the correct hand, how about the uh, uh, if a ref has a zipper or a Velcro patch on their kit? Uh, if they, I don't know, do we? Do you we missed time, the obvious do we one. Time, is... Do we time their speeds of removal of card? Oh, I mean, if if they are seen accepting money, pitch side oh, or in the stands or in the locker room beforehand. I mean, there's endless uh, ways to use this. Just to close the loop on this, because we've gone off on Tony Chaprone in a way that I never thought we would, but I have to finish this off. You pointed out that uh, you have you ever seen something something like this in a youth league game? Well, as I've mentioned to you before, uh, my son plays U12 soccer locally. And I can tell you that none of the officials could ever accomplish what Chapron did in this uh, match by uh, hacking down a player because the youth league referees in my son's leagues weigh approximately between 290 and 350 pounds on a given day. 
and rarely stray more than four yards from the center dot. They're calling penalties and corners and uh, open field fouls from 35 yards away behind the play on a routine basis. So don't worry about that in youth league. Uh, I'll give it to Tony Chaprone. He's uh, a sociopath in this regard, but he was at least fit. It's a really good point. Fantastic. I actually like in the the matches that that I've coached, uh, there was one official. I don't really know much about him, but he hates girls soccer is all I can think, because every time we get ready to start a match, he looks at the girls and says, now, just remember, ladies, this is in the WWE. Watch those elbows. You know, you're not allowed to. I I don't know the way that refs, uh, the inconsistencies between them at at any level uh, is is. Uh, and I was going to sit here and make a joke about the accent you just put on there, and and ask you why they brought this official in from Dallas or Fort Worth. But the truth is, he's just as likely from Pottsville, isn't he? That's offensive. No, we don't sound like that. Thank you. Uh, I guess last thing, Scottish Premiership. Uh, Steven Gerrard signs a four year deal to manager to manage Rangers. Um, you certainly, I think, uh, have a much longer history of, of watching Steven Gerrard. Again, I wasn't able to get really into international football until, I don't know, probably six, seven, eight years ago. Um, so I didn't get to enjoy a lot of the glory years of Steven Gerrard's career. Uh, it, to you, does this strike you as anything more than a, a big-name hire for Rangers? Is it, is, I know that you know, they're one of the premier clubs in that league. Is it something that you think was deserved? Is it something that they're just looking to, you know, gain some international credibility? Like, what are we looking at here with Steven Gerrard signing that deal? Well, the truth is always in the middle, isn't it? I mean, Gerrard's been working with Liverpool's youth uh, for the last few years and by all accounts doing a really good job. And I'm not sure how much of an impact Gerrard's work with the Liverpool youth players has had on the first team. But the truth is, Gerard's involved with a Liverpool uh, organization right now that couldn't be doing much better. They're in the Champions League final. Um, they have uh, excellent talent. We went off on uh, Alexander Arnold earlier and the, the save he made with his right hand. He's 19 years old and he played in the Champions League semifinal and he didn't get abused, uh, even though that one play he'd like to have back. So, yes, it's a big name uh, and and it's to be seen whether Gerard can manage uh, professional players at the highest level. Even the premiership in, in Scotland is, is a very high level of play. Uh, but this is a proven winner. Uh, UEFA Cup winner, UEFA Super Cup winner, FA Cup winner, League Cup. Never won the Premier League. Uh, and of course, you know, as a City fan, I remember finally him slipping uh, and essentially handing City the league title and a loss to Chelsea. That's but, my memory. That, well, that and honestly, that, that's, that's unfortunately that's, my that's memory of, of him 100%. That's how it is, right? I mean, we talked earlier about Ulrich fumbling that ball, and it's going to be a GIF, and it's going to be a uh, YouTube clip forever and a day. And he's, you know, Ulrich's never going to be able to live that down at Bayern. Well, Jared's a club legend at Liverpool, obviously, one of the greatest players they've ever had. And yet, the enduring memory at the end of his career is just falling on his ass and letting Demba go in, uh, you know undefended against the keeper in scoring and costing Liverpool really their best chance at a Premier League title in a long time. But that doesn't matter to Rangers. Rangers need somebody to manage who can bring them back within touching distance of Celtic. And for me, Gerrard is a good hire. Um, what's the worst thing that can happen to Rangers? Uh, Gerrard doesn't work out and they find somebody else in two years. Celtic are doing whatever they want against Rangers these days. And then Celtic goes into the Champions League final, uh, pardon me, Champions League uh, group stages, and gets beat up. So, yes, this is a good move for Rangers. It's a good move for the Scottish Premiership, and if it can restore a little bit of the uh, ice and anger and competitiveness in the rivalry between Rangers and Celtic, it can only be a good thing. I think that's probably a good spot for us to uh, to wrap up as we. Uh, I think did a, a decent enough job of, of kind of recapping the things, the biggest stories. Uh, of course, coming up this weekend, maybe the biggest matchup in uh, in all of international football, El Clasico. Uh, do you have any predictions, Phil, on Barcelona-Real Madrid this, this weekend? Barcelona will win that match. Real Madrid obviously have much bigger things to worry about. Barcelona have salted the title away. I'm not going to call this an exhibition because – both sides care about the outcome of this match, and of course, certainly the supporters care. 
But I don't think anyone can reasonably expect Real Madrid to expend a lot of emotional energy on this match when there is another Champions League trophy waiting for them on the other side. Uh, I've got Real Madrid winning this game uh, 15 nil. It's obviously not true. Uh, Barcelona. Fair and balanced. <laughs> we report, you decide. I'm guessing Barcelona probably wins this one 3 1. I wouldn't be too surprised to see like a Sergio Ramos goal like 15 minutes in. It feels like they're going to go in and, and, uh, you know, maybe maybe pull one back from Barcelona, even though Barca ran away with the league. But Barcelona probably rattles off three, two from Suarez, and then, I don't know, a, a screamer from Rakitic or something like that. So I guess we'll see how things go this weekend. Uh, as always, uh, Crossing Broad FC is part of the Crossing Broad Podcast Network. Don't forget to go check out the other shows on the network. Uh, Crossed Up is a Phillies podcast if you're a Philadelphia Phillies fan. Uh, Bob and Anthony had that locked down. They, they put their show out for every Tuesday morning. Crossing Broadcast is the uh, anchor show here Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And, um, of course, we've got this show. We've got Snow the Goalie, which is a Flyers podcast on Thursdays. And it's always soccer in Philadelphia with Kevin Kincaid and Dave Zeitlin. That comes out typically on the weekend or occasionally uh, midweek. But, Phil, before we go, what would a Crossing Broad FC show be without a five-star review? Let me have it. We've got a new one uh, from F.A. Barber. Great podcast, five stars. Great rapport between the hosts, and both bring lots of knowledge to the table, along with a lighthearted and fun approach to discussing soccer. Phil's soccer takes are far more palatable than his Brett Brown takes. And we're going we're gonna to leave it there, Phil. We're going to leave you be likable, lovable even, to some, uh, without spewing your hatred of the Sixers' uh, head coach. I think this is, a, this is a good spot to go. Any, uh, any wise words for the people on your way out? I'm sure the Sixers will come back from that series. I, I can't imagine that uh, blowing another 22-point lead will be any detriment at all, and I'm sure they'll win in six. All right, that's fantastic, Phil. They're going to win four straight. Blessed. Hashtag blessed. Uh, El Clasico coming up this week. And, of course, next week we will be back with a brand-new show. Uh, until then, I'm Russell Joy at Joy on Broad. Don't forget to follow uh, me on Twitter as well as Phil at Phil Kaidel. Uh Hit us up. Talk to us about international football and let us know what you think of the show and all that jazz. We will talk to you again next week.